Well, in the summer of 64 AD, a terrible fire burned for seven days in the city of Rome. And that left three quarters of the entire city entirely destroyed. And so at once, the people accused the emperor, Nero, of conspiring to light the city ablaze for his own enjoyment. Now to escape the assaults that were coming, all of the accusations, what did Nero do? Well, he blamed the Christians for the fire, which actually led to thousands being killed for their faith. A a Roman historian recounted Nero's actions saying, to stop the rumor that Nero started the fire, he falsely charged and punished with the most fearful tortures the Christians who were generally hated. First, those who confessed they were Christians were arrested. Next, a vast number of them were sentenced to death. Not so much on the initial charge of burning the city of Rome, but as for their sheer hatred for the human race. This is the context surrounding the book of Hebrews. This is the persecution that the Christians are about to endure. It's because of this very account. So those who are listening intently to the author's words are those who are looking in the face of death. These people were in the crosshairs of Nero. Now just let that sink in for a moment. And just remember the command that we've heard already in the book of Hebrews. Even as we saw last week in chapter 4. Hold fast to your confession. Now for a moment, just place yourselves in the footsteps of those who are about to be persecuted. And think about, you're hearing a man say, hold fast to your confidence. Hold fast to your confession." I mean, the tug to flee persecution by running back to Moses and the old covenant must have been so tempting. And then to hear this preacher go and say, hold fast, brothers, hold fast, sisters, hold fast to your confidence. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking I'd probably be in the boat of saying, hold fast to our confidence. Why would I do that? Why am I going to hold fast to my confession? This confidence, this confession is going to get me killed. This is going to get my wife killed. This is going to get my friends and family killed. This is going to get my church family killed. Hold fast to this. Why would I ever do that? When trials come, our typical orientation isn't to think about holding fast to our confession and drawing near. I mean, instinctively, We get all swirled in a vortex of fear, worry, and anxiety. And so why hold fast to our confession? Why would we possibly draw near? Well, you see, the author of the book of Hebrews gives us the reason why in chapter 5. And we see it clearly, that Christians are to hold fast to their confession in the face of difficulty because they have a greater high priest in Jesus. He's far greater than the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, our confidence is to be bolstered by the reality of Christ's priestly work, which leads to greater and greater obedience to him. So if you would, please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5. And while you turn there, feel free to grab your outlines. 
And you're going to notice that there are three points that I want to highlight for us this morning from the text. Number one, the Levitical priesthood. Number two, Jesus' priesthood. And number three, our greater high priest. So follow along with me as I read in Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. The author writes, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So point one, the Levitical priesthood. And as we look at this point, we find a description of A, the high priestly office in the Old Testament. Just look at how our text begins in verse one. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So we just start off verse 1 with such a wonderful word, for, right? And this little word helps us understand, it provides the context for us surrounding our passage, right? So in chapter 4, which we just were in, it displays Christ's supremacy as high priest through his sympathy with our weaknesses, right? We saw that in verse 15 of chapter 4. And in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, we see Christ's supremacy through his appointment as the great high priest. And how is this all accomplished? Well, he does a comparison. He compares the priesthood of old, the Levitical priesthood, to Jesus' priesthood. Just look what it says of the high priest from the Old Testament. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, notice, here is the role of the high priest. The high priest is taken from among men, all in Israel, but God's not calling animals, angels, or any other creature, is he? No, God appoints men from among the people. In fact, it had to be a living, breathing offspring from the tribe of Levi, one who would know the people, one who dwells with the people. Why? Because the high priest is a representative on behalf of those in the camp. He's the representative. He's the mediator. He's the go-between, between God and man. And so these men are called by God to stand on behalf of men. And verse 1 tells us, in relation to God, which is shown the, showing the purpose of their role, right? According to the author here, there are two things that the high priest is responsible to do. 
right? Number one, they offer gifts. And number two, they make sacrifices, and which is exactly what we see all throughout the entire Old Testament. They carry out their role with gifts of thanksgiving and with various sacrifices, right? Including sacrificing of burnt offerings, just as we see in Leviticus 1, fellowship offerings in Leviticus 3, and sin offerings in Leviticus 4. And we can go on and on and on, but don't miss the key for us here in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. The priest, the high priest, is responsible for offering gifts and sacrifices to God for sin. You see, this here is a cosmic mediator. The high priest steps in front of the people to offer sacrifices for sin and to appease the wrath of God, which is absolutely necessary because all of humanity is steeped in wickedness and sin. And so sin must be dealt with day in, day out, because we continually disobey God and his word. And so the only way to deal with sin is for the sacrifice to be present among the people, which makes a way for the sinners to be spared through the atoning sacrifice of another. And so we see that's exactly what the high priest did. The office of the priesthood demonstrated from the Old Testament. But in verses 2 and 3, we see that the high priest was be unified with God's people. Look at verses two and three with me. It says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Now just look at how the high priest relates with the people. What does he do? He deals gently. He, he's compassionate. He deals compassionately with the ignorant and the wayward. So the ignorant of sin, the, the unwillful disobedience, Right? They're ignorant to their disobedience and those who are prone to waywardness, to wander off from what God desires for them. Now, if that's the case for those under the Levitical priesthood, isn't it safe to say that we are prone to the very same reality? Isn't that the case for those addressed in this letter? Isn't that the case for us? Ignorant, prone to waywardness, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Like a fish lured by the shine and rattles of fake bait, we're prone to the ignorance and weight of our own sin. And what do we do? We wander off. We wander. This morning, are you wandering? Are you wandering? Are you ignorant potentially to sin, blind to the foolish intentions of your heart? If that is the case, then we must take the time even today to assess our hearts in our lives, asking a loved one or a dear friend to help shine the light on our hearts. Where might we be ignorant of sin? How might I guard myself against ignorance and waywardness in my own heart and life? Where am I prone to wander? Where am I prone to flee? Look what the author declares next. He, the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself, the high priest, is beset. He shares with weakness. So the high priest is effective in dealing compassionately with the people because he shares the same human condition, right? They're all in the same boat together. 
It's kind of like the stomach flu. When you hear that a family has gone down with a bug, your first instinct is to pray to the Lord that you don't get it, right? But then you sympathize with the family. Why? Oh, because you've been there. Your kids have had it, and you know just how terrible that thing is. You share in the experience with them. Really weird way, but you share in the experience. You may send a text, right, filled with kind words. Oh, that really stinks. You have the bug. I hope you feel better. Or maybe you bring soup to the door. You knock, and then you run because you don't want to get it. (laughs) You deal gently with them. You've been there. And so in the same way that the high priest in the Old Testament dealt gently, compassionately with the people because they're cut from the same cloth, we understand that compassion is brewed from being sharers in ignorance, waywardness, and sinful weakness. The high priest deal gently with the people. But with this unity that the high priests have between the people and themselves, there comes a great dilemma. Verse 3 continues. Because of this, right? Because of the union that the people have with the high priests. High priests, people, unified because of this. He, the high priest, is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So just catch it with me. The high priest's sinful weakness is the cause of their ineffectiveness in their role as the high priest, right? It's the reason why the high priest makes sacrifices for sin, not just on behalf of the people, but for themselves. Why is it? It's because they're all sinners. Same boat, same cloth. Now, why does this matter? Well, it tells us that the high priest can only have compassion for sinners, Only compassion. The high priest knows what it's like to be ignorant and wayward, but he is absolutely unable to deliver them from sin. Which means what? Well, it means that they're all in big, big trouble. The high priest and the people together, they cannot be delivered fully and forever from their sin. And so the high priest was given a specific task as the mediator before God. They were unified with the people because they're all sinners. And verse 4 shows us that they were appointed by God to the task, just as Aaron was. Look with me at verse 4. It says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So no one takes the honor of being a high priest for himself, right? There are no self-appointed high priests. There are no democratic elections to the office. No, God appoints, just as he appointed Aaron. That's what we see in our text. And that's what we see in Exodus 28. God says to Moses, bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel, Right? And just pause. Do you hear the language? It's connecting to Hebrews chapter 5. The people who are among right, the high priests. And what purpose to bring Aaron and the sons? It's to serve me, to serve God as priests. So just make the connection in verse 4. God appointed the high priests. That's God's doing. He's the one who knew. He's the one who saw the need. The necessity of atonement is God's idea. 
That's not instituted by man. And so the Lord graciously acts on our behalf to provide for the need that man has. To provide for mediation and our means of final reconciliation. God provides a priesthood for the people. But as what we see and what we know from the Old Testament is that the Levitical priesthood is only a shadow of what's to come. The shadow of a knife won't hurt you. The shadow of a dog won't bite you. And the shadow of a high priest can't possibly save you from the wrath of God. No, we need the substance. We need the authentic, true, great high priest to go before us so that we can hold fast to our confidence when trials come, when difficulty arises, when we are tempted to run back to lesser things. We need Jesus. And so the Levitical priesthood from the Old Testament made sacrifices to God, right? They were united with the people, just as feeble, sinful as the rest. And they're appointed by God. But here's the problem. They're only human. They're tainted by sin. Which means that the priest's sacrifices were entirely ineffective and incomplete. But what we find in chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, is the Lord Jesus, his priesthood, where Jesus is entirely effective to offer sacrifices to God. He's truly human, and yet without sin, he is effective to offer once and for all himself for his people. And so the author compares the Levitical priesthood to be Jesus' priesthood by first zooming in on the fact that Jesus was, A, honored as high priest. Verses 5 and 6 say, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right, so the author shifts gears here in verse 5 to draw a comparison between the priests of old and Christ, right, in verses 5 through 10. So just look at how the verse begins. So also Christ, right? You just hear the comparison language. And so in the same way that we saw with Aaron, Levitical priesthood, Jesus didn't elevate himself. That's what the text says. He didn't exalt himself to be a high priest. No, he was appointed a high priest. And verse 5 adds that Jesus was appointed by God. So not only is Jesus honored by God as a high priest, but then the author proves that God's the one who appointed him, which is exactly what he demonstrates in the two cross-references that he gives there in our text, that he, that as the son and as the eternal priest. So number one, as the son, just look at the cross-reference. The first one there in verse five, it says, Jesus was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Now, you may remember that back in chapter 1, verse 5, the author highlights this passage from Psalm 2 to make mention of Jesus' sonship, right? He's greater than the angels. He's God's son. He's the Lord Jesus. But he now comes back to this reference and applies it in a different dimension, right? He's kind of just shifting the diamond a little bit. And so why do I say that? Well, because now what we see is that he's talking about priests. He's talking about Jesus as a great high priest. So what does Psalm 2 have to do with Jesus as being our high priest. Well, just remember that Psalm 2 is all about the king. 
This is a messianic psalm. It's about the Messiah, which was already referenced in chapter 1, referring directly to Jesus' resurrection, right? He's placed in a position of authority over all things, including his enemies, where he makes them his footstool, right? In fact, most scholars suggest that Psalm 2-7 is quoted here to display that Jesus is not only a son, but he's actually a risen king. Tom Schreiner highlights this reality and says, Jesus' priestly status is proved not only by his sacrifice, but also by his resurrection and his reign at the Father's right hand. So God appointed his son. He placed him in a seat of honor at his right hand. So just as we saw in that confession in chapter 1, verse 4, when Jesus made atonement for sins, what did he do? He sat at the right hand of the throne of God. And so at that very moment, we're told that Jesus was installed as high priest, which is exactly what Hebrews 8.1 is going to tell us. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the author of Hebrews demonstrates that Jesus is honored as a son. This is the king. But Jesus is also honored as the eternal priest. Look with me at verse 6. As he, God the Father, says also in another place, in another place, that is another psalm, you, Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, we've got a psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4. And this, too, is all about the Messiah. This is about the king. So let me just highlight one main idea and one brief clarification. And so first, this king is going to be an eternal priest. Look at verse 6 again. This king is a priest forever. So God declares that he's an eternal priest. He's a son unlike all other priests. So Jesus serves eternally because Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, his priesthood has no end. Why? Because it's eternal. It's an eternal priesthood, which follows the order of who? Not Aaron, not any of the other Levitical priests, No, he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's just pause for a moment. Melchizedek's quite an interesting name, isn't it? I mean, it's potentially the name of my second born. But, no, Candace would actually probably not like that much. But all kidding aside, Melchizedek is crucial to the Old Testament, and he's only seen twice. Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And so in Genesis 14... He has an interaction with Abraham, and we're told that he was a priest of God most high. Now, that's all well, great, and good, but what's the significance of Melchizedek coming up on the scene in Hebrews 5? Well, here's the point. Melchizedek symbolizes in the Old Testament a priesthood different from the priesthood of Aaron and the tribe of Levi. He isn't from their lineage. He comes onto the scene with no apparent family, no ethical background. And so Melchizedek becomes a pointer to a priesthood without beginning or without end, an eternal priesthood, which is why Psalm 110 and Hebrews 5, 6 highlight the word forever. That's pretty important in our text. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, just like Melchizedek, appointed forever. And so Jesus is the substance of what's been shadowed in the fascinating and obscure life of Melchizedek. 
But Christ really is a high priest. But even more so, he's the greater eternal priest king. That's what the author's getting at here. So don't miss this. Those who sin against an eternal God need an eternal priest to reconcile us to the king. And that's exactly what Jesus accomplishes. He is our eternal priest and king. And so unlike the priesthood of old, Jesus is appointed by God as a, get ready for this, a Melchizedekian priest. So not only is he A, appointed by God, but he's B, unified with his people. Look at verses 7 and 8. Look what it tells us of Jesus' life. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So just as we saw in verse 2, the high priest was united to the people, right? He could identify with them as their representative. And so in a similar manner, what we're seeing here is that Jesus as well is unified with his people. He is their representative. He is with them and before them. Verses 7 and 8, he's unified with his people in the sense that he has experienced the suffering in life just like we do. He's experienced every bit of suffering like we have. But look at how verse 7 begins. In the days of his flesh, offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Just notice how this begins. In the days, plural, in the days of his flesh. Right? So this isn't talking about one specific event, but this is a lifetime. This is Jesus' life. Filled with day in and day out dependence on God. Continual prayer and supplication to his father in heaven. Why? Because death was approaching. Death was a reality. So what does Jesus do? The text tells us he offers up prayers with loud, loud crying to the Lord. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. Why? Why was he heard? Because of his reverence, because of his devotion, his purity, his dedication to the will of the Father. That's why he is heard. And so Jesus cries out in dependence upon God to save him from death, which shouldn't come as any surprise to us, because we know that Jesus was well aware of his looming death, and he looked to the Lord to raise him from the dead. Right? Just think of it. He predicts his, his death multiple times in the Gospels. Even in Mark, we see it consistently. Right? Mark 8, 31, the Son of Man. This is what Jesus says, by the way. The Son of Man will be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. Mark 9, 31, when he, the Son of Man, once again, Jesus talking, is killed. When the Son of Man is killed, after three days, he will rise Mark 10, 32 through 34, once again, Jesus says, they will mock him, aka, they're going to mock me, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days, he will rise. Right, so Jesus is well aware of the plan. He's not caught off guard. No, he's praying for God to deliver him from death. He's going to suffer. He knows it. He's going to be killed. He knows it. And on the third day, God's going to raise him from the dead. No questions asked. And guess what? He knows it. He knows God's going to raise him from the dead. And we know his prayers are answered. 
because he was resurrected from the dead. And Hebrews 1.3 testifies to that very reality, right? It says in verse three, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He was ascended before the king of glory of all creation and he sits down at the right hand. His resurrection from the dead leads to kingly glory. Which is the identifying marker that Jesus' prayers were actually heard. He prayed to the Lord to save him from death and the father did just that. Verse 7b, he prayed with loud cries to the Lord to save him and he, Jesus, was heard because of his reverence. Now just think about this for a moment. Just think of the example that we have here in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the sinless one. In the face of unimaginable pain, fear, and grief, he doesn't lose his way, does he? Right? He's not flailing, right? He's not in the vortex of fear and grief and despair. He doesn't look to food, drink, or relationships. He doesn't look for an easy way out. He doesn't look for help to escape reality. No. He prays. Loud cries. He prays to the Lord. He earnestly seeks after him. He knows his father and he depends upon him to work in the face of opposition and mind-numbing heartache. Now here's the question I've been thinking through. How many of us look inward to other things to get through our days rather than then run to the throne of grace where our God is faithful to give mercy and grace at every hour of need. Jesus believes. Jesus knows the promises of God and trusts him. How many times am I prone to not believe God and his word? Well, may we be encouraged by the faithful Lord Jesus, his life and his death. So the Lord Jesus is united with his blood-bought people in the sense that he has experienced the sufferings of this world just like we experience. And so we have a high priest who can deal gently, compassionately with us because what? He identifies with us. He's experienced it. But in greater ways, we have a high priest who can deliver us from sin. One who actually is the appointed source of salvation. Just look at verse eight. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now there are two reasons for Jesus being declared the source of eternal salvation for sinners. Number one, it's through perfect perfection. And number two, it's through designation. And so first, it's through perfection. And so just look at verse eight, right? The point that we see in verse eight is that Jesus displays his absolute obedience, right? Verse eight says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this is a difficult passage. So I want us to just be very, very clear the author's not saying that Jesus was disobedient throughout his life and figured out how to be obedient as life went on, right? Kind of just figuring out as he goes. No, there's a clear process of learning through what he's continuously suffered. 
In other words, Jesus was placed into the vice of daily human experience, learning obedience. So how does he learn obedience? According to our text, it is very clear. He learns obedience through what he suffered, which highlights what? His humanity. Truly representative. Truly experiencing what we have experienced. But notice how verse 9 continues the logic of the argument, right? It says, and so in connection with verse 8, what we've just seen, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now this phrase, being made perfect, can't possibly mean that there was a time when Jesus was sinful. Well, why not? Because he's God. This is God. He is without sin. And so we got to be clear, the author of Hebrews isn't contradicting himself, right? No, he is abundantly clear. How do we know this? Well, last week we heard in chapter 4, verse 15, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, don't miss this, yet without sin. Right? So if Jesus is without sin, then he isn't becoming more and more morally perfect, is he? No, he's perfect in all his ways. So then what on earth does it mean that he was made perfect? Well, he's perfect, made perfect in the sense that all his suffering and his death qualified him uniquely to, save, to serve as a great high priest on behalf of those that he saves with his precious blood. He's qualified, made fit for the work. You know, this reminds me of what Pastor Steve had to endure with the military. He had to walk through rigorous training, maybe not walk, walk's probably not a helpful word, but rigorous training to be made entirely qualified for the work of a chaplain in the Air National Guard, right? What did he do? He went to boot camp for like two months, then he comes home. And then he goes back again for formal education. He learns the ins and outs of the work. And then what happened? He's given his diploma. You're qualified for the work. You're a chaplain in the Air National Guard. And so in a similar degree, Jesus moved from untested obedience into suffering and then through suffering into tested, proven obedience. He's eternally qualified and checking all the boxes, proving himself obedient through suffering, which means that he is an adequate and worthy great high priest. But not only that, and more significantly, He's our proven source of an eternal salvation. He's the source. He is qualified for the work. And just look at the end of verse 9. Jesus is the source of salvation for all those who obey him. Now, I don't want us to miss what's being said here. I don't want us to miss these words, all those who obey him. Because without obedience, it's clear, there is no salvation. There is no eternal salvation without obedience. Are you tracking with me? If there is no obedience, if there is no fruit in our hearts and lives, then there is no true faith. I'm not saying this is works-based righteousness. I'm not saying you need to obey all these rules, jump all through all these hoops, and then he will be your source. I'm saying if you have true faith, saving faith, you will obey. 
You are obedient. You see, God doesn't save men and women from death and judgment for them to then live free and die hard the New Hampshire way. No, he saves a people. He places the spirit of God in them that they would then joyfully walk in faithful obedience to his commands. Faith always leads to obedience. So here's a question. Are you obeying God? Are you obeying him? Do you claim that you're a believer and yet live like the devil? Do you seek out opportunities to grow in faithful obedience, knowing that you find great joy and satisfaction in loving and serving the king? If not, I want to appeal to you. And I want to appeal to you first to not grit your teeth and just try harder to stop sinning and then obey God and everything will be made right. No, I want to appeal to you this morning to look upon Jesus. I want you to gaze upon his beauty, to see the great work of salvation, that he learned obedience through what he suffered without sin, qualified as great eternal priest and king, drawing himself to the altar before the Father and willingly enduring the full wrath of God in the place of sinners like me and you. That we might know him, that we might treasure him and experience grace upon grace for our days. He lived a life of perfect obedience, qualifying him to die the death that sinners deserve to die. And he rose from the dead as the eternal priest and king forevermore. And so I want you to know this one thing. You must trust him. You must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ because apart from him, you will never experience joy in him. You will experience joy his righteous judgment. So be found in Christ that you might know this great high priest. Oh, he's worthy of worship. He's worthy of faith-filled obedience. Now in verses 9 and 10, we're told that Jesus became the source of salvation through number one, perfection, but also number two, through designation, which is that exactly what verse 10 tells us, right? It says, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? So really, we're coming full circle in, in, our, in our text here, just as we saw argued in verse six. Jesus has been declared a priest under the order of Melchizedek. The Lord Jesus isn't kind of parading around doing a grand campaign to become a high priest. No, God designated him as a great high priest in a league entirely of his own, making him the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. He's qualified, and he has been designated by the Father himself. And so therefore, there's no other place to look for salvation. You see that in the text? He is the source of eternal salvation. There is no other place to find the source but in Christ alone. He is where salvation is found. So all this is wonderful, right? Great theology as we found it in Hebrews 5. But it's important for us to come back to the question I asked at the beginning of our time. Why should we hold fast to our confession as we've seen in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16? 
Why do we hold fast? Well, what he tells us here is you hold fast because you have a greater high priest. You have a greater high priest than the Levitical priesthood. He is far better. He is the source of eternal salvation. It's in him. He's the son of God. He's the eternal king and the sinless high priest. And so he allows us to come before the throne of God in our time of need. And so when life gets hard, when persecution's on the horizon, when the kids won't stop screaming, when your boss has given you your last warning, when your marriage is strained, when your cancer won't stop spreading, how then can we practically hold fast to our confession? Well, two things. We must A, consider our high priest. And B, we must obey our high priest. So consider our high priest. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I think we can get so entangled in the smog of life. Right? When difficulty arises, I have a hard time gaining the proper perspective on life, let alone taking the time to think about my great high priest, the Lord Jesus. I'm thinking about other things. But I want to encourage you that that couldn't be a more unhelpful way to deal with your difficulty. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews would probably say if he was here this morning. Because the reason for why we can hold fast to our confession, why we can hold tight to the Lord Jesus when our entire world is crumbling around us, is because you have a great and eternal high priest. You have a great eternal high priest and king. He knows you. He sympathizes with you and he ever reigns over all things as a priest who paid the blood price for you that you might have life forevermore. And so in the face of persecution, the stress of life, running children, the aisles of Trader Joe's, tax season, unemployment, final exams, whatever the difficulty may be, we must place ourselves at the precipice of his grandeur. We must gaze at who he is in and of himself, all of his majesty and glory. Like the one who walks to the edge of the Grand Canyon and is undone by the expanse below, we must turn to pages like Hebrews chapter 5. We got to open up our Bibles and read. We've got to consider our great high priest, memorizing Hebrews 5 6. Memorizing the reality that, my goodness, this is the high priest. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God designated Jesus Christ as a king and a priest forever. Just let that sink in for a moment. Because we don't think about these things long enough. Just think even right now. Your king is on the throne Forever. Forever. He's your mediator forever. He's in control on the throne and never coming off it. He sits over all the earth and the whole earth does his bidding. That's your king. The eternal priest not only mediates for you, but offered himself once and for all that you may have life forevermore. He is the king of kings. He is eternal and he's everlasting. He sits. He reigns forever. That's the God we need to consider this morning. You see, his obedience is your obedience. 
His perfection is our perfection. His deliverance from death results in our greater deliverance from death forever. This is the priest. This is your greater high priest. And because he reigns, you can hold fast to your confession. Even when life hurts. Even when you can't see the light in the end of the tunnel. You can't see it. Even when crying's all you feel that you can do, the reality is, as seen and declared in the word of God, he still reigns. He's still the king. He intercedes. He is your confession. So there's no better thing that the, the author could be telling us but to hold fast. Because when difficulty arises, he's the only thing that will. That's the king. You know, it's been said that one of my heroes in the faith, William Grimshaw, would consider God continuously throughout the day to the point that on a whim, he would be reading his Bible and he'd set it then down and then he'd just stare out into the room. He'd be silent for minutes. One guy actually said he'd be silent for 10 minutes staring out in the middle of nowhere. Why would he do that? Because as he considered the Lord... He was undone, <laughs> completely blown away, blown away by who God is. Now, I may be assuming way too much here, but I don't think that's how we function. I think in our world, God tends to become commonplace, meaning he's just a part of the schedule. He's a part of the to-do list. Let's just tack him on at the end. But what I suggest is that we need a growing zeal to sit in front of pages like these and marvel at who he is and what he's done. To meditate on what he has done. Recite who he is. Sing aloud, just as our call to worship suggests, sing aloud his praises and glory in the reality that he saved you. That he's keeping you. And that he will one day usher you in before his throne to enjoy him in all his infinite wonder and glory forever. Brothers and sisters, do you yearn for the king? Do you yearn for him? Are you hungry to know him? Do you consider our great high priest like you do an old history book? Or do you consider him as the living treasure that he is, that shines before your eyes and makes all else grow dim? Oh, I pray that we would be like the psalmist, the one who has the deer pants for water in times of need and the times of bounty that our souls pant for him. And so as we know that as we consider him, right, our right thinking of who he is in all of his infinite glory and majesty, that right thinking leads to right living. And that's where we see our desire to obey our high priest. Just remember what we read in verse 9. Jesus is the source of our eternal salvation for all who obey him. For all who obey him. And so this is exactly what he's commanded us to do. We are obedient people. Those who have been saved, obey. And so when we consider Jesus as our great high priest, the right response to the king is love and affection and true obedience, which is filled with duty and delight. 
One author writes, I've not found one good reason not to pray, read my Bible, or do anything else that God commands me to do. In fact, oftentimes, it is the doing of the thing that I don't want to do that actually serves to bring me joy. That's right. As we faithfully obey God, he provides joy, delight springing from the obedience. But make no mistake about it, obedience is a fruit of faith in Christ. And it's what what he rightfully deserves. So I just want to close here by encouraging you. If you're in Christ, I encourage you to keep obeying. Keep pursuing. Keep loving. Don't get comfortable with God's commands. Delight in doing them. Meditate on his word and be obedient to what God has called you to do. Set your mind on the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and be faithful to what he's called all of us to do. May we be a people whose confidence is bolstered by the reality of Christ's saving work, leading us to greater and greater obedience to him, all for his glory's sake. Allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace upon us to even provide for us the appointed one, our great high priest. Father, may we be a people who are marveling at the king, who look upon the son, pursuing him as we pursue to be faithful in obedience to you. God, we thank you for the good work you're doing in our hearts. We pray that you continue it, that you'd be conforming us into the image of Christ, that we love you, that we love your word, and that we'd love to joyfully obey you for your name's sake. And so it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.